This is Channel 253. In this episode of Citizen Tacoma. What I tell people, if you don't like how policing is, there is only one way for you to actually have a very good effect on changing it, and it's get in the job and make the difference. And uh, that would be one of the biggest messages is that I would would send out to mm-hmm. anyone who's unsatisfied with law enforcement. Well, then come here, learn learn the responsibilities that we have, see what the job is all about, and then affect change from within. Because that's truly how it's all going to happen. Channel 253 is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. I'm Nate Bowling, and I fly Alaska. To book your next trip, go to alaskaair.com. Hello, Annie. How are you? I'm so good. How are you? I'm just swell. Excellent. Today we have a really interesting interview with Cindy Fajardo. She's running for Pierce County Sheriff. And I am interested in talking to her. I'm nervous about talking to her a little bit because she has, she's running for a job that's very, right now it's highly politicized, right? And uh, rightly so. So... It's going to be interesting. Yeah, we uh, we asked some pretty good questions, and we talked to her about her guitar playing as well. Absolutely, she was in a folk band. Oh my gosh! Wait till you hear about this. It's incredible. Listen in. So, welcome, Cindy Fajardo. It's so nice to have you here. Uh, you are a candidate for Pierce County Sheriff, and that is a super important job. So, we are very excited to talk to you today, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Annie. It's my pleasure to be here. All right. Uh, Where are you from originally, and how did you end up in Pierce County? Well, I grew up in Brooklyn, New York, and uh, that is where my entire family still lives. And uh, I uh, was I was the child that left the house. And uh, my first venture was upstate New York, where I went to State University to learn how to be a forest ranger. And uh, when when I finished that job or that education, I realized that most of the work was seasonal. And my parents uh, pretty much said, well, how do, how do you expect to pay rent if you're only working seasonally? So uh, I had gotten a job in on Wall Street and worked there for a few years. And some college buddies had moved out to Colorado. And I said, well, I love the outdoors and Colorado sounds beautiful. So out I went. And uh, I was working in the insurance industry at the time and met a few police officers who brought me on a ride along. And the rest is history. Um, but one of the things that you should know is that every family member back home, they all work for the New York City Police Department. And it was never my intent to follow in those footsteps. So uh, it's it's an interesting uh, way to get back out here to, to Washington is um, in the Arapahoe County Sheriff's Department, where I worked for four years. I met my husband and he did his basic training out here at Fort Lewis and convinced me that Washington State had these beautiful mountains and water. And as coming from New York, I miss the ocean. He didn't explain to me that the water came from the sky. And so it took me a few years to get used to going from 360 days of sunshine to 360 days of gloom and doom with the clouds and showers. So, and uh, we both lateraled out. He was a deputy also. And Pierce County was doing their big lateral hiring in 1988. And Mm. we uh, applied and they picked both of us up. And we've been here ever since. All right. 
Well, uh, we're happy to have you here because uh, we love it. I love living here. I was born and raised here. Um, but it, yeah, you probably had a hard time with the sun setting over the ocean instead of rising over the ocean. Yes, I, I was always turned around a little bit because in, yeah. in Colorado, the, the mountains are on the west. Here in mm -hmm. Washington, the mountains are on the east. So I always thought yeah. I was going north, but I was south. But hey, I'm a search and rescue person. So it only took me like one wrong turn to figure that one out. Yeah, you're like, I got it. Yeah. <laughs> That's really neat that you originally trained to be a, a forest ranger. I've always thought that would be such an interesting career just to be able to, you know, work in an interpretive center or to, to meet people um, in that kind of environment. That would be so interesting. Um, it seems like the, the kind of career choices you made, you are kind of always interacting with the public. Is, is that something that you that you set out to do? Was that just kind of how it happened? Or do you see yourself as more, you know, outgoing? Would you, you know, how would you describe kind of that part of your journey? Because they're all kind of pu public facing careers, right? I, I think as even as a child, you know, I belonged to the church choir and uh, eventually, you know, taught guitar lessons and performed uh, musically. And so I think uh, it, I was always up in front in and engaging with people. And uh, it's, it's, I think part of, uh, you know, the thread of my, my being to interact with people and, and get to know people and, um, and pretty much help people. Uh, my, my mother was very um, generous in community work. And, and I think that rubbed off on me because um, she would drag me along, of course, all, all over the place. I'm, I'm the baby of six kids. So I got a lot more attention than my brothers and sisters. And that was a, a thread that she engraved in us is that, you know, you, whatever you have, you need to allow other people to have what you have too. You always have to share. Mm -hmm. And uh, being coming into policing, I think just kind of brings that right, right to the forefront. Yeah. Um, what unique kind of perspective do you bring to the sheriff's office? So I, you know, I'm thinking about you as a candidate, but also you as a person, running for office, what, what's kind of your unique perspective on the job, on law enforcement in general, or specifically on Pierce County, the Pierce County Sheriff's Department? Well, I do have to say that growing up on the East Coast, it gave me a very, very strong foundation. Um, you know, I, I lived in the inner city, grew up there. Um, diversity was all around us. It was, it was not even like recognized because it was normal um, back in those, mm. in those days when I grew up. And um, the, the ability to just be able to say what you think right off the bat is, is a New York trait. You know, we're, we're sometimes considered to be rude, but it's just that we don't want to waste time. We just get to the point and get it over with. And I, and I think that uh, led a lot into my career and the perspective of being a woman. Granted, I started in law enforcement in 1984, and there was mm -hmm. only one of five women in the department at the time. And, and they issued wow. me a man's uniform. They issued me a male bulletproof vest. Um, the guys were brutal um, because you had to prove yourself. And uh, once you did, then you, you were in the group and they took really, really good care of you. But there was always that you had to perform at 110% or you weren't worthy. And mm -hmm. that perspective uh, for any woman I th that started law enforcement back in that day and, and survived is um, mm -hmm. it, it makes you very, very strong and it gives you some thick skin. And it makes you a problem solver too, because how do you do one up on someone who has a 20 year career, but yet you have to shine better than they shine or you, you're not mm -hmm. accepted. So it, it gives you a little bit more of a drive than 
I think, than any male officer that may have been employed at my my time. Yeah, yeah, that that totally makes sense. I I was in the fire explorer program when I was um, in middle school, high school, which is similar to Boy Scouts, but it's like training to for to be a first responder. And I I didn't end up going on that career path, but I was the only girl in the program, and it was it is interesting working now. I my primary job now is I'm an educator and working in a field that's dominated by women, right? Uh, those dynamics in, in those male-dominated professions um, and in female-dominated professions, when there's a, a, an imbalance, right? You, it's it creates um, conditions in the workplace that are, in some sometimes not not the best, right? Um, because you maybe sometimes feel like an outsider, you feel othered, or you feel like, um, and like you said, you felt welcome and included in in the departments you've been in, but um, that's not always the case, right? That is true, and uh, you know. People are shunned because of, um, you know, just just biases. I mean, and, and mm-hmm. you know, the, the biggest, I think, social experiment was I did my master's online. And we never got mm-hmm. to see who each other were. We, we were just based off of uh, talk and um, written documents. And when we did our graduation, mm-hmm. we did it in person. And when we finally met, we had, we had uh, written down what we thought the person would look like. And so when we finally met for graduation and opened up the envelopes of what we thought people were going to look like to understand the, uh, the, what the picture I had in my mind is not the picture that I saw. And it was probably one of the best social experiments that I've ever been involved in. Wow. Yeah. People's eyes of, you know, would I have given this person this much uh, room and had a great discussion with them and then considered my friend if I hadn't seen what they looked like, would some biases that I had inside of me, I wasn't aware of, you know, kind of mm-hmm. play into whether or not I was going to give them the time of day. So that really woke me up to um, keeping a very open vision to anyone I meet and, uh, you know, say, well, I don't like them, but why don't I like them? And is that just something that can be fixed or is it that I don't trust them or they are just not nice people? But uh, mm-hmm. it, it makes me take a step back, and I do give people, a, I think, more of a wider berth to uh, come into my circle than I think I would have normally done. Mm. Wow. Thank you. Uh, I noticed from just reading some of your, your, your bio online and then from what you, you said in the, our first set of questions, you have experiences in various aspects of law enforcement um, so di- kind of different roles within the profession. So what type of work was the most formative for you in terms of professional and personal growth? Well, you know, there's always the fun stuff that you get to do. And search and rescue was was kind of uh, a takeoff of my forestry. And so mm-hmm. I um, was really, really excited that I uh, could, could do that work. And, and and I've been doing it since, what, 1989 up until now. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, getting on the federal task force, which I spent all morning today um, tr- working with them because we got an alert notice to go down to the hurricane. And uh, mm. th- that's been that's been very, very satisfying as an enjoyable job. But when you look at what kind of exposure have I had that I thought was formidable to, to have built my career, the first thing I would have to say is when the town of Stillicum um, selected me to be their interim uh, director of public safety. I was uh, a, a rank of a sergeant and I, I competed for the job and they, they chose me. And for three years, I read, I led their police, fire, and EMS divisions. And uh, I had to learn budgets. I had to learn from a manager's side of it how to negotiate labor contracts, not as the beneficiary of a labor contract, but what was good for the city. 
I had a fire department that I had zero experience of being a firefighter. I knew the rescue end of it from my search and rescue, but um, I went to the fire academy so I could understand what it was that the job entailed. And if I was asking these guys to go into a burning building, did I have enough knowledge to know whether or not it was safe or not? And so uh, that experience um, really set a, a good foundation for me of trying to be just aware of I can't ask somebody to do something I, I don't know enough about. It's not right of me to do that. So as a leader mm. in, in my future, I've always attempted to be one step ahead in, in that knowledge base. The other is when I was the union president. So for nine years, I served as the president of the deputy sheriff's independent guild. And from a labor aspect of it, you learn so much about how the department runs, what's management rights. You know, you talk about officer schedules. It's not all about the money. And it's not all about the benefits. It's things like, um, am I eligible to apply for this special job? If I, if I promote, what, um, what does my probation look like? And, and how do I get training to make sure I, I make probation? Um, labor management is like a monthly meeting where just everyday tasks that, that meet the definition of uh, change of working condition or unfair labor uh, built a very strong foundation for understanding the management aspect of, of a department and what what could and couldn't be done. And you know, there's a lot of things that management can do, and there's a lot of things management can't do. And having a clear understanding of what that is is, is very important. And then my, my last big assignment was when um, the uh, department opened the Parkland Spanaway Precinct, and I was selected to um, implement the opening. And that was probably one of the most favorite assignments that, that I ever had because it was all about interaction with the community and uh, gaining trust of a community that hadn't seen police in their neighborhood for many, many years and trying to come mm -hmm. up with innovative ways to make them more visible without increasing staffing because we opened this precinct, but we got no additional staff. So I had a steel staff from the South Hill precinct and thank goodness, um, my my peer over at the the uh, South Hill Precinct was a good friend of mine, and so we worked everything in a partnership, and so it benefited both as both sides of the county, both east and west. And there again, I I was in charge of eleven different programs, eleven different budgets, eleven different missions, um, eleven different supervisors, and so you you get a very broad um, perspective of what it takes to keep that that train on the track. And uh, mm -hmm. I, I really enjoyed the community interaction and growth. It was uh, very, very rewarding. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. So the position of sheriff is nonpartisan. So is. how is, is it to the day-to-day -day work of a sheriff for that position to be nonpartisan? Well, I think, you know, when, when you look at somebody who's nonpartisan, it's somebody who's going to look at both sides of the argument and then... Mm make the decision of what's best for the people that they serve. And so, you know, right now, of course, we have two totally different camps on what policing should look like. We have um, in the political world. And so how do you take both of their concerns, put them in a blender and mix them together so it just benefits the overall community and not one specific group. And that's going to be a pretty interesting dance to see how that, that comes about. Yeah, absolutely. You have certain communities that have a totally different aspect of what their needs are. 
but yet they're all in the same county. And so you have to address each one of them. Yeah. Well, that's interesting about the, the just the demographic breakdown of Pierce County, thinking about rural areas out by Yelm, thinking about uh, the east side of Tacoma, thinking about um, you know, University Place. I mean, just kind of the, the kind of wide, um, uh, like, uh, opportunity gaps for kids in certain neighborhoods, the, mm-hmm. the um, income disparities. Uh, so, yeah, it's like, that's an, it's incredibly complex, right? Um, it is. Very, yeah. yeah. And I so live, I live in the, I live yeah. in the rural area. And so, you know, typically okay. we, have, we have two deputies that go from McKenna all the way up to uh, the entrance to the national park. Um, wow. Yeah. So how, how do you serve properly serve the entire community when you only have. Right. Yeah. That's a huge geographic area. Yeah. Hey Doug, did you have yeah, a question? I was thinking we were talking about the concerns that people have um, and having the need to adjudicate those concerns and, and, and choose priorities. What, what would you say are your concerns um, in the role of sheriff? Well, of course, my biggest concern, and, and I think it's kind of fell and fallen off the, the chart is, you know, we take an oath to protect and serve and to protect and serve equally. And if you keep that as your foundation, you can easily build off of that. My biggest concern always has been, I was asked the question the other day that, are you just saying this because of the recent events? And, and I can say emphatically, no, it's, it's been my concern as a woman coming into the department and having to be challenged is we don't have a, a reflective department of the community. Um, I, I want to grow our minority um, representation in, in both the law enforcement side of the house and the jail side of the house. And I think that I believe truly that that is the only way that we can actually make a great connection with the community because my deputies need to learn the different cultures of the different races and the different ethnicities and get, that's how they're going to get a better understanding of it. It's not going to be sitting in front of a computer screen, uh, watching a two hour video and then taking a test at the end. It's going to be by having these type of conversations and actually um, learning to empath- have an empathy for, for different cultural backgrounds and, and realize how that came about. So when they're placed in that situation, they can, they can relate back to that one-on-one conversation, that one-on-one training um, that they've had with people uh, that they work with and have mm-hmm. a much greater impact than, than learning it over a computer screen. So as sheriff, would yeah. you have that capacity to create a program? I mean, what, what specifically could you do to, to create uh, that, more, that diversity that, that we want to see? Well, it, it starts with the hiring process. So uh, several years ago, I sat on a number of uh, hiring interviews, and a lot of people were being uh, disqualified for um, not necessarily their performance on the interviews, but their backgrounds. And they were situational things, in my opinion. Um, but we have a set of rules that we have to follow from civil service and from the sheriff of you know, what the standard is to be able to be a, a deputy sheriff. But can we look a little bit differently at that and say, well, just because you filed for bankruptcy, you're not going to be automatically disqualified. Let's figure out why you filed for bankruptcy. And if it was something that was um, not a totally irresponsible move on your part, because we want responsible people working for us, but is there something in that that was situational? So personalizing the hiring process, it's going to, it's going to slow it down a little bit. It's going to slow it down. But at the end, I think you're going to get better candidates. And uh, from that is, 
why aren't we getting even people in the minority groups even applying? Um, what is it about our department in the face of our department that they may apply for Seattle or they may apply for Tacoma, but they're not applying for Pierce County or they're not applying for law enforcement at all. So we have to get out there and figure out, you know, where, where's that, uh, that rub? Um, who can we convert and how do we convert it? Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, uh, the, the thing that springs to my mind, and I may be wrong, is that they see the demographics of the county as opposed to the demographics of the city, and they see largely a, a, a rural white population and think, well, uh, I don't know that I would fit there. Mm-hmm. But if if the goal is to have true equality and um, and fight this the social injustices so forth and so on, what part can we play in that? And by having officers of color and minorities on my department that do exchange with the the typical white citizen in the rural Pierce County, they're going to be exposed to a new platform and and it may bring them closer to, you know, a, a partnership in that regard. So it's an educational process in, in in itself just by having that exposure. And the sheriff then would probably have to actively petition um, people to to apply and, and to join the force. Yes. And our yeah. current sheriff has done done that. He's attempted mm-hmm. that numerous times. Okay. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, of course, one of the big things is to, to talk with Sheriff Pastor and say, okay, where, where did it not happen for you why you know where 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 was the stop why did it yeah. why did it yeah. not continue because that was a platform of his many years ago yeah. and uh, and i know that he worked very very hard on that and mm-hmm. and we really didn't see the results that we would have expected to see based on the hours he was putting in on that so yeah. it's not like it hasn't gone unaddressed it has yeah interesting yeah and it's interesting I, you know i think about the 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 barriers or the perceived barriers to careers in law enforcement for um, groups that have been traditionally not included in law enforcement, depart- like in departments, or um, haven't been considered in hiring. Um, and so you, know, I, you wonder if that is there's some kind of cycle to that, right? That folks don't see a place for themselves in law enforcement, and so they won't seek out those jobs, or they have a negative perception of law enforcement, and so they won't seek out those jobs, um, or they don't see opportunities to change law enforcement from within departments, and so they won't apply for those jobs. So it seems like there are a lot of layers, right? There's a lot of, there are a lot of layers of um, trust, distrust, um, perception, um, you know, between civilians and, and the police. And um, do you see, do you see that, like, the, do you see those other kind of barriers kind of like layering on top of the, the hiring? Because hiring, like you said, hiring is kind of the first stop, but is there some kind of relationship building? Is there some kind of relationship breakdown, right, between law enforcement and civilians? I think in general terms, though, when I, when I first started in law enforcement, my first um, interview that I or first application that I had, there was over eighteen hundred people at that hiring job job fair, that wow. applications with the city of Denver. Eighteen hundred people. We're lucky if we get twenty. So yeah. culturally, culturally, I think the the aspect of being in a service job has uh, mm-hmm. has not been what people want to do. They, they, they don't want to work weekends. They don't want to work holidays. They don't want to work nights. I can go work for a tech company, make my own hours, sit at home, do it from my home and make more than a deputy sheriff. Why would I expose myself to every kind of disease that there is out there, the potential of getting beat up, the potential of, of getting uh, into a shooting 
um, which may or may not be justified. Um, but going through that that scrutiny um, until the decision is made as to whether or not it was justified. Um, why would I do that if I can go work for a tech company uh, that I can make a hundred thousand dollars? And and I think just the fact that Washington is a very very strong tech company, we we battle that challenge all the time. But what I tell people, if you don't like how policing is, there is only one way for you to actually have a very good effect on changing it, and it's get in the job and make the difference. And uh, that would be one of the biggest messages is that I would would send out to mm -hmm. anyone who's unsatisfied with law enforcement. Well, then come here, learn learn the responsibilities that we have, see what the job is all about, and then affect change from within. Because that's truly how it's all going to happen. Mm -hmm. So um, the sheriff's role is not a policymaking role in the same way that like a legislative seat is or um, like city council. So you don't exactly have a platform. Like your website isn't like, here's my platform for um, sheriff, uh, but you certainly have ideas that are in included in your um, kind of your public, the things you're sharing with the public and your website and um, interviews and things like that. So um, it's, you've already named a few of them, but what are some of your other ideas about how to improve policing in Pierce County? Like what's, what, what, what are, what are parts of your plans that you haven't, uh, haven't shared yet? So first of all, actually we do have a legislative input because we have a state organization. Ooh. Yep. We have a state Very organization, cool. WASPIC who um, does go to, to Olympia and lobbies for us on law and justice issues. Okay. And uh, so, so we, we do delve in, in going down to Olympia and, and fighting for what we believe is um, proper for um, promoting and keeping law enforcement um, at, at, at a level that uh, the citizens are satisfied with. But the other things that I want to, to talk about too is, you know, when, we had all these budget cuts in early 2000 up to the recession in 2008, and a lot of programs were cut. And so the only thing that was left was for people to call 911. And so we've kind of, over the years, um, we've been the default person for the homeless, for the mental health issues, uh, for anything that um, didn't fit in the box. It, it, not necessarily just crime. Uh, we became the social workers. We used to have West uh, uh, Puget Sound Hospital where they, it was a you know mental health hospital where we could take people that were in crises. And over the years, it's just kind of fallen on our plate. We didn't get any corresponding budget with that. It was just when people dial 911, we go. That's just what we do. And so the call for defunding really is bothersome to me because the, 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 the premise is, well, if we remove all of this responsibility from you, there's got to be a coordinating dollar that goes with that. Well, there was no coordinating dollar that came with it when we took this over. And so I think we have to be very, very careful of what we're looking at when we say defunding. One of the biggest things that I see as a challenge with my officers, of course, staffing is, um, it's been a challenge in unincorporated county for years. I could, I could put on an, an extra 100 officers and I would be comfortable. I wouldn't be great, but I would be comfortable. That comes with a very, very high price tag. But can I redefine what calls they go to? Do I really need a deputy going to a theft call and, and someone who's you know, fully armed to fight crime when they're going there for an insurance purpose and just taking a report? So redefining exactly what needs an armed deputy to respond to as opposed to um, some other method that we, we could do. I, I don't wanna give off the premise that I am soft on crime. Um, 
I'm, I'm very, very hard on crime. I, um, in fact, I was on the road with the, the troops yesterday and, and we went to a, a disturbance call where there was a, a first degree assault and uh, somebody had a gun and, you know, I'm on that call with my officers um, you know, protecting the people of, of, of Pierce County. And the sheriff needs to keep that perspective of what it's like to roll up on a call where somebody's running around with a gun and, you know, you have to take control and make sure everyone gets safe. And if I only have two officers in an area where I need four officers to go to that call, that's, that's very, very disturbing to me that they are at a level of being unsafe because of the, the, the staffing issue. But if we redefine the calls that we, we go to and we don't tie up officers on calls that can be done otherwise, then they have the opportunity to actually be out patrolling and doing crime prevention, catching those people that are actually in the process of committing a burglary, catching those people that may be in the process of arm robbering a, a bank or a, a grocery store. Get back to exactly what it was that we did, you know, 20 years ago in policing and, and um, get away from the uh, social worker aspect of it. Um, Officers want to help people. That is, that is why they join it. I, I don't know anybody on the department that said, "Well, I want to, I want to join the police department because I want to get into a shooting." Uh, I've, I've never, ever, ever heard that. It's because they feel they can make a difference in the community. So we need to give them the tools so they can make a difference in the community and not be tied up going call to call to call, where they don't have any interaction um, with people on the street. Um, people that are uh, or have the opportunity to go to a youth uh, program and just sit back and observe and, and chat with kids and, and become their, their mentors, become their friends. We haven't been able to do that in a very, very long time. And then that ties into, can then we convince people to come join the department? Well, if they just see the guy driving around in the car and they never talk to them, what's, what, what's the draw? There is no draw. But if I have an officer that gets out of the car and grabs a basketball and says, okay, we're going to go one for one, let's go for it. They've, they've built a relationship and they've been mentoring and, and we have a potential there. So it's very basic stuff, to be honest with you, but it's, uh, there's a lot of moving parts to make it come back to that basics. Well, now would actually be a great time to take a break. I do have a follow-up question about, about that, the answer that you just gave. And so I'd really like to, to come right back to that. We're going to take a short break and we will be right back. This is Alaska Airlines mileage plan MVP, Nate Bowling, host of the Channel 253 sister podcast, Nerd Farmer. Hope and I are setting off on a new adventure. We're moving to the Middle East for the next few years and exploring a new culture. Don't worry, don't worry. The Nerd Farmer podcast isn't going anywhere. But do you know what is coming with us? My Alaska Airlines mileage plan. Here's what's cool. Alaska has more than 15 global partners which allows me to earn and use Alaska miles even when I'm not flying Alaska. So if I leave SeaTac and fly direct to Dubai on Emirates on an eligible fare, I'm going to earn Alaska miles on that flight. That means whenever I fly home, I'm going to be racking up some insane miles that I can use to book future travel. If you have an international vacation plan, check out the list of Alaska airline partners like Japan Airlines, British Airways, Cathay Pacific, Qantas, and a whole lot more. Enter your Alaska Airlines mileage plan number when you book with Alaska Global Partners and watch those miles add up toward elite status on your next trip. My thanks to Alaska Airlines for their continued support of Channel 253. Learn more at alaskaair.com backslash global partners. And 
we're back. So I, your, your prior comments really made me think a lot about, um, as an educator, a lot of teachers now, because of the kind of continuous defunding of education, teachers are also expected to take on some roles that traditionally have not been on their plate, right? So I think about kind of the social worker aspect, the counselor aspect, the nursing aspect of teaching, right, where I'm continually responding to, um, you know, kind of changing situations where we don't have enough, necessarily enough staff. And that's not the fault of individual school buildings. The school building I work in is incredible. They are really great at getting us the resources we need, but um, over time, just losing losing the resources that we need to effectively educate students, which is more than just teaching, right? It's bigger than that. Um, you, you mentioned, though, about um, police officers being able to kind of get back to the basics of of police work and then not having this, um, the kind of the extra job of being social workers. What, if you had a magic wand to say like, we need social workers, right? Like we need social workers in this situation or we need folks who are, um, you know, a 911 call comes from someone who is in a mental health crisis, right? And we need someone who is trained in these kind of specialized areas what does that funding look like? What does that funding model look like? Do you see committing more resources to both, you know, social workers who can intervene in kind of mental health crises, um, plus more funding for police, plus, do we just need more money for everything? Uh-huh. If we could only print it, <laughs> you know, it would really, uh, yeah. it really help things out. You know, we, we had obtained a, a grant, it's called the True Fund, Fund uh, Monies, and that came from a, a lawsuit that was filed um, against the state, and it, it addresses mm-hmm. um, the mental health issue. And from that grant, we were able to get some co-responders with our officers. And mm-hmm. it has been an extremely successful program. And the, the part of it being successful is not only the person in crises is getting immediate attention, where we're not just taking them to the hospital and dropping them off um, for an evaluation, but they're, they're getting that one-on-one attention and uh, getting into the system the way they need to be get into the system, the way the social workers know their way around that system to get them the help exactly that they need. And we have an officer that goes with them and um, to, to just to make sure that you know, security is there. And that is a program that we, we do need to continue. But my fear is once that grant funding is, is done, what do we do then? You know, mm-hmm. I don't have it in my budget to keep that going. And- uh, right. With the anticipated cuts in budget because of the COVID, there's a lot of other programs that potentially are going to lose their funding and go by the wayside. So, you know, it's we're taking one step forward and then we're taking two steps back. You know, we know what we need to do, but the the, the justification or the, the fact of the matter is it's all um, expensive. And uh, we, we have another program, it's called the MCERT team. And they deal with our frequent flyer 911 call people. These are folks that necessarily aren't of a, a level of threat where they actually need an officer to go. But mm-hmm. these are people that will call 911 60, 70 times a day just to tell mm-hmm. us about, you know, the aliens coming into their, their home and so forth. And, and this, this group identifies those folks, gets them into treatment. We've had great success stories where um, the MSER team was actually getting to be able to get these people housing and jobs and get them back into the community. And so um, there's, there's great programs out there to help some of these issues, but many of them are grant funded. And once those grants run out, we're back to square one again. And um, 
the funding for police, there's, there's, we have all of our responsibilities that we have to do. So if you take that money away from us, there are things that are just not going to get done anymore. And so then there's going to be the uproar of, well, I waited seven hours for a deputy to show up and they never showed up. And then yeah. we're not going to have the money for the mental health people. So they're going to wind up back in the emergency rooms, um, which is not the place for them. Uh, the fire departments are going to be totally strapped also because they'll wind up doing the transports. So while you're having your heart attack, they're transporting someone with a mental health crisis to the hospital um, mm-hmm. in, in an ALS unit, which is one of the advanced units. So it's not just policing's problem. It, it also spills over into public safety in general, including the fire departments. Yeah, absolutely. I know that um, one of the you know, more common now with that, you know, in our area, the aging population is that, that um, elderly members of the community will call when they are, feel as though they're having an emergency, but, you know, it's not necessarily um, a true emergency. So I had a neighbor, um, you know, for a while, and she's now moved into an assisted living facility, but she would call 911 regularly because she was um, short of breath. And she, uh, and typically the, the fire department would come and they would help her, you know, redo her cannula and to get her back in her oxygen tank. But it, like, it's not um, always, you know, when, like you said, there are other crises happening at the, you know, simultaneously, is that taking resources away? We need a more robust system for addressing all kinds of crises in the community, right? It seems like in a lot of um, programs are underfunded. Yes. And, you know, things are expensive now. And uh, right. you need, we're, we're building the new facility in Parkland to, to assist with the, uh, the transition. And it's, it's going to be a, a beautiful, beautiful building. And hopefully that'll, you know, take some of the strain off of uh, the, the firefighters and the deputies out on the street. But, yeah. but again, you know, it's, you know, you're building a building. How many millions of dollars did that take? Uh, Alan right. Park put their, um, their wing on for mental health. Um, mm. You know, another how many millions of dollars for that? So yeah. um, it's, it's, an, it's a very, very interesting um, dilemma that we, we've put ourselves in. And uh, yeah. putting, a, you know, putting a clear picture on whose responsibility is it and how do we all work together um, you know, when you when you see law enforcement and you think, well, how does that relate to you know enforcing crime or enforcing the laws or, and it's just a matter of, of the safety aspect of keeping people safe. Many mm-hmm. people with um, mental health issues also have substance abuse issues, which makes them, uh, in in sometimes very very dangerous. And so, can I expect a social worker with no training to go out there and and essentially, you know? potentially be a victim of this person um, because of their inability to, to rationalize what it is they're doing. It's, it's, it's not their fault. It's, it's, it's a, it's a condition. It's a mental issue. It's a medical issue. And uh, you know, if they were right with their brain, they wouldn't be doing that. They, and so uh, you know, you, you feel for them and you want to help them. And, but in yeah. the same vein, you don't want any of your folks to get hurt. And then that's, mm-hmm. that's the fine line. Yeah. Yeah. It's a very fine line. So um, the one thing I noticed, and I don't, I actually don't have enough information about this. So I wanted to ask um, the King County Sheriff's office and some local police departments do implicit bias training. Uh, King County has a minimum of eight hours for implicit bias training and additional training in de-escalation 
for officers and deputies. Um, so from your perspective, do you think these trainings help officers and deputies to be better prepared when they go into a situation uh, where maybe someone has escalated? Um, should they be required to do more than eight hours? Um, is there a similar program in Pierce County? I wasn't I wasn't able to find um, recent news about it. I'm assuming there is, but I just wanted to clarify that. It's a statewide mandate. So every law enforcement oh, okay. agency is required to go through the critical incident training and have follow-up training. Um, okay. A certain percentage of your department has to go through a 40-hour class, and then mm. the, the other percentage of it has to go through an eight-hour class with annual um, updates. I just completed mine last week, and it was on uh, people with traumatic brain injuries and some of the uh, things to watch out for, um, the indicators that may trigger um, that you can recognize they have a traumatic brain injury. Any mm. training that we can get our officers are is, is good training. Um, mm-hmm. any, anytime we can grow their awareness level, it's good training. Um, the thing I worry about is it's awareness training. It doesn't make them an expert in the field. So we need to make sure that they can recognize that this could be autism, this could be a traumatic brain injury, this could be um, any one of a number of things. But where do I turn to to get this person the right help? So mm-hmm. just understanding that what they're dealing with so they don't overreact to something, again, that this person has no, no control over. This is a mental condition or a brain condition or a medical condition that makes them act the way they are. It's not that they're doing it purposefully, but how do we deal with them safely and then mm-hmm. move them on to um, the resources that know how to deal with that? And so mm-hmm. we've, I, again, I think we're doing very well in that area with our outreach programs and our mobile, um, our co-responders and the training that we, we receive. So it's, it's expanding, it, it makes it a little bit difficult because then you're making them technicians. And you know, we have to go and we have to do our uh, pursuit training every year for eight hours. We have defensive mm-hmm. tactics training for eight hours. We have um, you know, first aid. We have so many uh, certifications that we have to keep current that all, yeah. it's good training, but that's more hours that we're not working and so when those hours start adding up, I need to bring a second person on in order to cover the street. So it, it, it's a balance that we're going to have to be able to deal with as more and more of these mandates come mm-hmm. down from the state. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm glad you mentioned autism. I actually, um, am, it's a topic that's really interesting to me, just in the sense that autism um, depending on the severity of, you know, someone's autism spectrum disorder, that it can um, really impact the way that, that folks respond to authority figures or respond in, um, to social cues or to, you know, what is appropriate or not appropriate. And so that's, that's a very, that can be very challenging, right? To recognize when um, someone is not neurotypical, not necessarily even mental illness necessarily, uh, but to have a non-neurotypical person um, maybe reacting in a way that's unexpected, right? And then having officers, you know, respond accordingly um, and safely. So I think that's, I'm glad that you mentioned that. It's not talked about often enough. Um, So thank you for that. Mm -hmm. Um, So I had a question about, you already talked about about the issue of defunding the police um, and how you feel about that. And I'm wondering kind of a a follow-up question to that. Um, so based on kind of high profile incidents that which have happened recently in which um, folks have died or been bad, badly injured. And in, in some cases, um, I live in Auburn, the, the recent um, 
recent uh, murder charges brought against an Auburn police officer for his role in um, in uh, the the death of Jesse Sari. Um, that 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 there have been a lot of calls to defund police, reform the police departments. Um, and based on your previous response, I I'm wondering what you think are some of the um, kind of reform options because it sounds like that's where you are, you, where you're thinking as a candidate, where you're thinking as, um, you know, thinking as a sheriff, like in your, from your perspective, what are some of those reforms that can happen from within the police department to reduce the likelihood of there being a, um, you know, a situation where someone is killed by police and that is, that is proven to be like murder, right? Or it's proven to be like um, that the officer had ill intent. And, you know, I, I, I I don't agree that the word ill intent is probably uh, the right description of, of what. I should, uh, yeah, sorry, is. I should clarify yeah. just the, the officer who was charged in Auburn. He was the first police officer in Washington to be charged under the law that um, basically um, what initiative, I think initiative 940, um, mm-hmm. the state of Washington. So, um, so that had, because Washington's burden for proving whether or not some land officer acted in a negligent manner or maliciously, um, that standard is very high. Um, so, so anyway, sorry, I just wanted to clarify that. I didn't, I didn't mean just that, um, you know, that I think just that that's the, the perception, the public perception, right. Is that the officer did not have good intentions in that situation, but yeah, please go ahead. You know, and, and I've, I've talked about this before and I, I've gotten some, some pretty significant, uh, criticism about my position on this, but, when, when you're in um, a fight for potentially your life as a law enforcement officer, um, it, it, it's, it, it takes a lot out of you. I mean, you, you have all of these rules and all of these laws that are running through your head of what can I do, what can I do? Your training kicks in. Um, and my perspective is, is are, are we making our officers confident enough to be able to deal with these situations? Are we giving them enough defensive tactics training so they don't feel like they necessarily have to resort to their to their weapon? Um, I, I can't say that I know of any study that's been done that totally picks apart all of the unjustified um, shootings in uh, by law enforcement over the years. Um, what was going on in that officer's mind to, to make them feel that that was the only recourse they had was to take out their weapon and and when we take out our weapon and we're not going to shoot you in the knee we're not going to you know try to disable you that is the ultimate weapon to be used to take away a life to end a situation and so I'm I'm a kind of an analytical person in some some respects and I would love to be able to find out from these officers what was the crossing point what was that one specific thing that you thought it was either you or them that made you go there. And uh, because of all the, you know, they're not going to say that because of all the lawsuits and so forth and so on. But we have to, we have to get down to the, to the uh, absolute um, uh, threshold of, you know, there truly is a line in the sand. I've been in um, life and death situations and I can tell you, I, I had drawn a line in the sand. If that guy comes over that line, I have no other option but to, to end his life. Thankfully, he he didn't do it, but you know, it, and that was all in took place in all of what one and a half two seconds. Um, mm. It's it's a difficult discussion because, you know, my officers get great training. My and, and our Pierce County deputies, we've been in our fair of um, 
officer-involved shootings. And, and thankfully, they've all been considered to be justified. But it's only going to take that one. And so uh, making sure that they are comfortable in their job, that they feel that they have the tools necessary, that they feel personally confident in their ability to, to deal a situation and, and understand that they can walk away. And I think that's one of the, the things that we, we lose perspective of is that if we have a situation that we don't think we can handle on ourselves, there's nothing that says that we can't take a couple of steps back until other help arrives. Unless, of course, somebody's murdering someone else and then we have a duty to inject ourselves. But um, giving them permission to do that and to you know, take a step back until you, know, you can reevaluate the situation and maybe come about it in a different way. So I think we have to start having those those very tough conversations. If there's a two situations that are equal, except that one of the perpetrators or perceived perpetrators is white and one is black, and if there's a situation where the person who's black is murdered, and and it is racially because the racism is involved, does that mean that that officer who killed the black person has ill intent because they're a racist? Yeah. How how is the officer getting the tag of being a racist? Was it because he just he took the life of a a black person, or is there any indication that they had that bias that made them act in that matter? Is and so that's that's where we have to um, you know make that distinction. Um, if if as you said, if you had two separate situations and one was a black and one was on white, and it was the same result, does that make that officer racist because it was? a black person that was murdered or is it just plain murder because he would have taken the same action had the perpetrator been white? There seems to be evidence and indication that actions are being taken by officers that are more extreme in the case of people being black as opposed to white. Is that a fair assumption? You know, I, I, I don't want to get into that um, as, as not having all of the details of each one of those cases. That would be just doing some subjective. George Floyd. Mm-hmm. George Floyd was, was definitely an excessive use of force by those, those officers um, based on what I observed and what the reports, reports say. Um, whether or not it was a race, racially motivated, I think that's something that's probably going to come out in the trial as to whether or not that okay. was. But um, I'm, I'm not in a position to make that decision or that evaluation. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, so the, the officer in the shooting in Auburn, um, that that was, you know, now that that has gone through the kind of the filter of the justice system, mm-hmm. that it was determined that he had, he shot the, this man at, you know, close range and it was, um, and it was very, um, clear that the, the, the kind of positional authority that the officer had a lot more power and control in the situation than, than Jesse Seary did. And, you know, I was just thinking about, um, you know, at what point did that, that situation you think about now that it's been kind of adjudicated, right. That he has been actually charged with murder, Mm -hmm. that, that Jesse Seary is still dead. Right. And so then it's, it comes to like, at what point could that have, that process of, of, of justice in this case been, um, different. Right. And so I you know at what point would, did, would he have stopped or would someone who was working with him have stopped and said, this is not the appropriate action to take. Right. And so, um, yeah, I wonder about, I, I wonder about that. And I don't really know exactly what the answer is, but, um, just thinking about 
uh, George Floyd, where the, uh, there were officers in that situation who were also bystanders, right? Um, so, you know, what is the responsibility of officers to hold other officers accountable or to, um, you know, if they're reacting into a situation that is ever changing and threatening to law enforcement, like, how do you keep a clear head and how do you help others stay calm and keep a clear head in situations that are volatile, right? Um, and I don't know the answer. I don't know the answer to that. This is just me rambling now. But if you have any yeah. insights, yeah. yeah. We, we, have to, we do have to be each other's gatekeepers. And, you know, they're, if somebody is carrying a racial bias along with them, their partners are going to pick up on that, on just little comments that are made over coffee, um, little smirk things that are, you know, talked about maybe in car to car. And we have to be each other's gatekeepers and say, you know, that's, that's just not acceptable. And that's why I bring this back to, you know, having better diversity in the department, because are, are people acting out uh, wrongly and, and criminally because of their own unknown bias, um, where they, they, they don't have a, uh, a comfortable um, uh, feeling amongst themselves about how they, they feel about black people or how they feel about Hispanic people, because maybe they don't have a relationship with someone of color. Maybe all of their friends are, are white or Hispanic or whatever. And do they have a, a bias that they don't even know that they have, um, but it's a fear of, of the unknown. Um, I don't, you know, I don't have those answers. If I did, we wouldn't have any of this going on right now. We'd be able to just put an end to it and, and everyone would be safe and we would never have officers uh, murdering people that um, or were innocent. Um, it, it, it puts a scarlet letter on every single officer. Um, we, we take the actions of our fellow officers when they, when they commit crimes. Um, that's, that's a very hard burden for us to carry. And it does affect an officer about their reaction. Um, am I going to be, how am I going to be judged? Um, I need to, um, and potentially they're putting themselves in, in greater harm because they are taking that extra minute to say, um, I don't want to be the person accused of murdering someone when maybe they do have total justification to do what they're doing. So um, it's, it is a hot item. Everybody has their own viewpoint and their opinion. Um, everybody has different views on how this can be resolved, but we have to work through it and we can't rush through it. We have to do it right this time. And it is the time to do it. The discussions are out there. The, the evidence is out there. It's, it's our opportunity now to take what we need to do and take our time to make sure we, we make these corrections right and just don't do a, a snap judgment because we think defunding is going to solve all of this. If anything, defunding may escalate this. With less officers on the street, if they're becoming more and more involved in physical altercations and there's no one there to back them up, are they going to have to make that ultimate decision that they may not have had to make because they had sufficient staffing to help them with the situation? So we, I think we have to be very, very careful and analyze what we, what we think is the solution to see if it, that's actually it or is that just a reaction. And it sounds like you know, with the, the type of um, training that's required by the state, but also with kind of these ongoing conversations that officers are being challenged to think, and it doesn't necessarily mean that everyone will change their behavior or that they'll assess their own biases or that they'll assess their own racism or that they'll address those things for themselves, but the public conversation is, is kind of bringing those things to light. So um, it's not like that's, um, in, it, that's leading to some positive change or at least self-reflection um, within departments and that that's a positive thing. 
It is, and but we're also going to see the the uh, we're going to see officers that look come home, look at their family, and say, "This job isn't worth it anymore. Uh, I can't. Yeah. I'm not going to put my family through the potential that I may make a mistake and um, and and you know maybe something occurs and it's you know it, there was no ill intent, but it happened and it was wrong, and I'm responsible mm-hmm. for it. But I can't do that to my family anymore, and they're leaving. They're going to different yeah. careers. And uh, yeah. there are a lot of different careers out there that um, can be had. And uh, again, we get back to um, a lot of great jobs in Washington State, a lot of good money for people to make, and, and they don't have to put themselves in, in harm's way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so this is our kind of our final question. I think Doug had an additional question at the end that he wanted to, to ask, too. I just wondering... Why should Pierce County voters consider you when they get their ballot? Because this is really, we got to know you really well over the last hour. Like, what is it? Why, why should people vote for you when they get their ballot? Well, I think, I hope that during this past hour that we've had some pretty good conversation about topics all over the board is that people realize that I, I'm very, very passionate about the Sheriff's Department. I'm very passionate about my officers and the good work that they can do. And um, I've, built my career and worked my career all the way up from the time that I was a deputy in Colorado um, to, to the time here to understand and um, have a good grasp on the operation of the department, what's needed, what the community wants from their department. And uh, I can, I can jump in the job with both feet and, and just go forward and take off and, um, and, and help maneuver a lot of these very, very difficult questions and, and ask and, and ask back the same question of, well, this is your position, but have you considered this? And uh, I'm, I love Washington State. Um, you know, I have, we have a little farm here in, in, in Roy and, uh, you know, I could, I could ride off into the sunset on my horse and, and, uh, and not look back. But that's not who I am. I, I see this challenge coming forward, and I think that both the community and the deputies that have put their their families in in this position of working nights and holidays, and they need somebody who's going to be out there um, giving their message and making sure that they are they are taken care of just as well as the community is taken care of. And and that's that's why I'm doing it. And uh, it would be totally my honor if the citizens of Pierce County uh, thought the same way and and would want me to be their sheriff. Great. All right. Thank- you had a last I question. I do have a, for, I have a, I have a last question. Today? Now, it sounds like it's out of left field, but I don't think it is because of what you said. Now, you mentioned your career in forestry, and mm-hmm. you mentioned as well that you were teaching guitar. You've taught guitar. I have. Okay. This yes. What this does, this paints a picture uh, for me of you sitting around a campfire in the woods with the guitar singing with people. Is this true? I've done that. Yes, <laughs> I have done that. That's awesome. What sort of song? That's awesome. I was actually in a band. Oh my goodness! You, you play guitar in a band. So cool. Who, yes. What was the band, and what 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 were the other instruments, and what did you play? I played banjo and I played guitar, and uh, it was John Sakura and Friends is what we were called. Oh, that's and great. And it was uh, wow. a little bit of a folk band, and and uh, we we did that in college, and then uh, we also. Uh, played in in Boulder and Denver and 
I did backup on a couple of albums, um, vocal backups for some people on a couple of albums, but uh, nobody in my department knows this. So I guess I just let it come. <laughs> oh, we won't tell. It's, it's, our, it's our little secret. I think that's so cool. I love the banjo. Yeah. So uh, do, I just love the and are, banjo. Are, do, oh. do you still play? Are you still playing? Do you still um, play? I, you know, actually, I got into a fight. Um, at work and um i tore all the ligaments in my thumb on my left hand and I, that ended my my ability to play very well so oh my um, goodness yeah well that's a shame yeah <laughs> well it's it's what happens on the job yeah there you go there you go mm-hmm. thank you so much well, Cindy. i am so so looking forward to your new uh musical instrument um endeavors with tambourine maybe like a symbol. <laughs> that are that because we should i mean wow i'm just like still saying so still saying I've, I've always wanted to be in a band Doug. i know i know i know i know you're in a band I'm, see yeah. everybody's been in a band except yeah. me this feels unfair well, well well after covid the three of us should get together <laughs> and uh you know we'll have a little you know sing along jam session yeah we'll i love it. that there we go Sounds perfect great. Well, we do have a little uh, last segment that's very short, but for action items because democracy is not a spectator sport. Mm-hmm. So, what are today's action items? Uh, mine, I would say, is just ensure that your voter registration is updated. I feel like that's my homework every time we do an episode of Citizen Tacoma. But you know, make sure that your voter registration is updated. Where at your current address? That's very important. It's very important in any any year. But we've had some issues with. Uh, um, leadership in the post office. We've had some problems with, uh, you know, um, kind of mail slowing. We want to make sure that everybody has the opportunity to express their voice civically. So uh, please make sure that your voter registration is updated and current. Cindy, do you have an t- action item for today? I do. Be informed. Don't be the voter that opens up their ballot and goes, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, or I recognize this name. Take your voter pamphlet, get your cup of coffee, Sit down, read what the candidate has to say, make your little check mark in your voter pamphlet, then get your ballot out and be an informed voter. That's the only way that you're going to make the changes that you want. Absolutely. Doug, do you have an action item today? I'm seconding all that. Vote and get your friends to vote. Perfect. Vote, 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 vote. That sounds great. Those are both great pieces of advice. I just, I, I love that. Um, you know, make sure you are well-educated about the issues and about candidates and, um, and vote, go vote. All right. Well, that is all we have for you today. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. And um, good luck. Thank you so much. Channel 253 is sponsored by Alaska Airlines. I'm Nate Bowling and I fly Alaska. To book your next trip, go to alaskaair.com. Citizen Tacoma is part of the Channel 253 podcast network. Check out our other shows, Nerd Farmer, Interchangeable White Ladies, We Are Tacoma, Move to Tacoma, Taco Man, Flounder's B-Team, Crossing Division, and What Say You? This is Channel 253.